Hello. Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And today I briefly want to talk about this way in which whichever system that we exist in, how is it that we get incorporated within the logic of that system? And how is it that if we get too deeply entrenched into any given system of thought or praxis, that it becomes harmful for us, but also for others? I mean, this is something that I have been trying to solve, this conundrum. And it's a pretty obvious thing in our lives. Most of the times, if you look around yourselves, we are told life is hard, right? But when we look around ourselves, we find out that most of the time, life is made hard by other human beings around us, right? What we are made to do or have to do or what, we, what is said to us, so life becomes hard. I think life is not hard by its very nature, but it is hard because we have to live it amongst other human beings, amongst fellow human beings. And it's the actions of each one of us as individuals, but also as groups that defines whether or not life is going to be easy or hard for others. And I've realized over a lifetime of thinking that when we live in any given administrative or system or, or a system of power, life becomes harder for us when more and more of us become an extension of that system. And that raises the next question. I mean, this is the question that Marxists have tried to answer, Foucault has tried to answer, you know, people like... Um, I'm just reading One Dimensional Man these days by Herbert Marcuse. So his theory of social change was based in this idea too. How do we as humans, first of all, learn of how we came to be who we are? What are the consequences of our actions, right? And how do our actions impact others, right? How is it that we as humans have internalized this idea that you have to work to sustain life, right? And Marcuse points out that that's hardly a choice, right? To say that I choose to work is basically saying in another way that if I don't, I will starve. It's a coercive act, right? But we read it within the language of choice. But so many such questions that I think of, but most importantly, what happens to us when we are part of a powerful system, when we are a small cog in it at different levels, and how do our actions actually harm others and maybe in turn harm our, ourselves, at least our spirits? So I thought I should, you know, share my raw and not really very well-formed thoughts about it. And I will reflect on this topic right here in public in front of you, relying on two strains of my personal lived experience. One in the Pakistan Army, where I served for 14 years, and then my experience of working in academia 
in the United States. Now the purpose is not to, you know, openly say things wrong, attribute wrong things to any institution. The purpose is to figure out how do we become who we are given the dictates and the ideological imperatives of any given institution. That's my purpose. And I hope it makes sense to you. <laughs> and if it doesn't, do let me know. Okay, so let's begin. So when I think about my experience in Pakistan Army, which was the most formative experience of my life, right? I went into a military boarding school in eighth grade and left in 1996. So pretty much most of my early adult life and my childhood life was in military institutions. And one would expect that in a military institution when you're serving there as a cadet or as an officer, you will be single-minded and you'll be taught obedience and you will not pose questions. That's what we assume would be an army life, but I never had that kind of an experience. Actually, starting from the very beginning, at least in our classes, we were encouraged to be intellectually curious. We were taught to think critically. Now, of course, it was about operational strategy, but we were also encouraged to read widely. And so as an institution, the officer corps in Pakistan Army, in my opinion, when I was there, was trained to be, you know, scholarly learned officers. Now, not all of us became that, but the intent was there in the system. And no one actually derided you for being better read. Actually, it was considered an asset, and people respected that. But there were strong distinctions between how different groups of officers behaved, right? We will have some officers who would be professionals, right? They loved the job, they learned it, they practiced it ethically, and they took a stand, you know, on matters of principle, right? And then there was another strain of officers who were careerists, they were also professionally really good. But these were the officers who will never ask a hard question of their superiors, who will pretty much do everything that was told to them. No moral qualm ever bothered them about whether to take an order seriously or not, because they were focused so singularly on their careers. And by and large, the way the army is structured very few deeply professional officers will make it to the top. Chances are if you cannot make certain important compromises, you, you, know, you will be sidelined, you will not succeed. Very rarely, I would say 0.1% of the deeply professional officers who are not afraid of asking hard questions of the system um, very rarely do they make it to the top. Some do, right? Uh, so that means the institution does care if you're professionally good and may, you know, overlook a few odd questions 
or behaviors. But by and large, you are expected to follow orders. And then some people follow orders, you know, to the letter, and some people take it to their heart to become a creature of the system. It depends on your choice. But what I learned in my in that experience was that those who were careerists, good officers, all of them, they were still not necessarily corrupt, but they will be very reluctant to take a stand for you if you served under them because they were there to preserve their own career, so it didn't matter to them, you know, if someone else took a fall for them or if they could apportion blame on someone else. It was the professional officers who took pride in their job, who were honest, right, dedicated, who would sometimes speak up on behalf of their troops, on behalf of those that they commanded and served, right? And these were the officers that sustain the institution in the long run. But what it taught me was that every system, a system as stringent as a military system or academia, has the possibility in it to create human subjectivities who behave differently. And both these subjectivities are actually reading the system and responding to it, right? But one defines his role or her role in it from the point of view of the interest of those that he or she serves, right? And that constitutes a different systemic identity. And the other were focused on, I'm here, I'm a good officer, I need to rise in the ranks, and here is what I need to do to do that. So those who were focused on their self constituted a completely different identities. Identities that are self, were self-centered and self-serving. Identities that were prone to accepting any dictate from their superiors, not asking any questions, with the hope that they will rise. And then identities that questioned the system and would absolutely clash with the system if it conflicted with their idea of what the system ought to be what it needs to do for those who serve the institution and the country. These were the two sort of conflicting identities of officers that I noticed. And the system usually picked up, you know, the ones that worked better in the system and took them higher. So that's based in my military experience. I'm not saying that one is good or the other. What I'm saying is how do we become that and then if we focus too much on our own careers, right, on what we want, what we want to accomplish, then most of the times it impacts lives of the other, others negatively. And sometimes you might even become so misguided that you might even use others, not just in peace-like settings, but even in war, to promote your own career. That is the destructive aspect of a self constituted within a system that is focused on safeguarding only and only its own self-interest. So let's apply the same to, let's say, a career in academia. So my career in academia, of course, follows almost a full career in Pakistan Army, so it was a huge shift for me. 
But the way I was trained, the people I studied with, these were all radical leftist people, right? My mentor was uh, central in launching the Modern Language Association Radical Caucus, right? These are the people who trained me, and they trained me to constantly question the system itself, English departments, English studies, whatever. I was trained to do that. And then when I entered my career as a professor, I started observing things. And this is across the board in any English department in the United States, right? Since we are trained to compete, so-called, for things, right? A tiny summer grant, right? A semester off here, travel funding. We have to write proposals, ask for money, right? So we internalize this idea that I am in competition with my colleagues. And that means we start safeguarding our own territory, right? Then we, what I also learned was that people in leadership positions, none of them was trained to be a leader, of course, right? They were managers. And at non-representational universities in the United States where there are no unions, all most departmental managers do is just take the orders from the dean and pass it down to the people below. Right? In a way, it is worse than the Pakistan army career that I had because there, there was no illusion of a democratic system. You know, we were in a hierarchical system. But in the university, we tried to portray this idea that we are a democracy and we are an egalitarian system. But I learned that by and large, the subjectivities here were the same. Those who wanted all the goodies and wanted you know, prime appointments and, you know, a smooth career didn't want to rock the boat, right? And so they would align themselves with the most powerful people in any given department, not speak up for the rights of their graduate students, for the rights of lecturers, adjunct labor, because it wasn't in their interest. They had already internalized that they were tenure-track professors and they were somehow better than the others. That's how academia divides us, right? And my biggest experience, not the biggest, but the most interesting was when, you know, I had this idea that leaders take a stand for people they serve, right? That's the tradition I came from, was that I was running this federal program and someone was trying to take away something, some office space that I had or all. And one of the deans walked into my office, an associate dean, and he said, well, can you do this? Can we move your assistant? And obviously he was accustomed to this idea that when he walks into an office and requests something, people do it. And I said, no. I need my assistant to have a good office to run the program. You can take my office instead. But he was kind of stunned. I didn't realize it at that time. But then I went and talked to my then chair and I said, look, so-and-so is trying to do this. And I would need your help in helping me tell them that, you know, this is going to be disruptive. And the chair, he looked in my eyes and said, hey, if the dean tells me to do it, there is nothing I can do. And that's where I, it struck me that all that we were doing 
was being the, the cog in the system that we were told we were. There was no thought process going on that maybe sometimes we ought to turn around and say, hey, this is not a right decision and these are my reasons for it. That tradition was very weak where I worked. And how did that happen? Because we, we, what do we expect of our tenure track professors? You've got six years to become tenured. We expect them for six years not to rock any boats. Just do your work, teach your classes, publish your research, don't raise any controversial issues. So here is someone who for five years in graduate school held his or her tongue, didn't say anything controversial. Then we gave him and her a career and expect them for another six years to stay quiet and do not rock the boat. Twelve years of their life they have spent in being quiet and being conforming to the system so that they can get one thing that will probably give them some voice, right? How many of us will go through 12 years of silencing ourselves, not questioning the system, without becoming a part of the system? Right? So the system in academia, the way our subjectivities are created, then is not coercive in a sense. There is no dominant dictate. It's hegemonic, right? It makes us a part of itself. We start agreeing with its logic and then plot ourselves in it, right? Assign other people, this is an adjunct, this is a lecturer, this is a graduate student, and assign them their value according to that, which is predetermined for us, and very few of us question that, right? So, and that is what, you know, Marcuse is talking about that is what the, how the exteriority becomes the interiority and becomes ourself, right? And so, how do we encounter this? The idea is how do we stop any given ideological or material system from completely appropriating ourselves? And for that, Sometimes I go to this essay, right, by James C. Scott. It's called The Anarchist Calisthenics, right? And I'll post a link to it in the description. It's available, in which he gives an example of his experience post high school in this small German town. And he says that every day he would walk back to his dorm or wherever he lived, and there was one single pedestrian light, right? And everyone would line up on this side and wait for the light to turn green. And there was no traffic. This was in the middle of nowhere. But the German people, right, felt proud in following the discipline. Think of it, if you're in Pakistan, that's what we say people ought to be disciplined. And one day he decides, you know, to jaywalk and cross the road. Right? He looks both ways. There is no traffic there at all. And all the other people are like, you are wrong. Right? And what he says is that that law that didn't allow you to cross a street like that, if you buy into it, then the law is so deeply entrenched in you, this idea that you must follow it, that when big things happen, like Holocaust, right, you do not have a habit of challenging the dictates of those big imperatives, right? So, 
anarchist calisthenics says what he says is every now and then you know train yourself to go against a useless law right which is just there to control your thought and ideas right of course you will do that in a way that you don't harm anyone else but a little flimsy law that tells you don't do this thing don't put paper on top of another paper right or send us your um course descriptions and you turn around and say well i sent them to you last year why can't you use those right little things what it does is that it reminds you constantly that there are certain things the system systemically that are done that can sometimes incorporate you into its own logic and you you forget why we are doing these things right and two you forget how to resist these imperatives right and then people can work through you their larger agendas now i have another example from like my career in academia and you know that is uh, you know we have like something called merit pay so what is that state of texas mandated that the universities and school systems will not give cost of living raises raises to their faculty but those raises will be based on merit that is the law so at any other university in any other state every 3 years either the union negotiates it with administration or the state says the cost of living has increased let's give a 3% raise to our workers and the professors and everyone else is included in it instead of taxes we have to develop a mechanism of monitoring and measuring merit right and then quite a few of us sit every year and evaluate our colleagues for this merit raise and we think it's a science and in the process of doing that we forgot as to why it was mandated right now questioning this practice is the first step in turning around and asking our administrators why don't you lobby the state to say hey guys okay promotions can be on merit but there is a thing called cost of living raise which everyone must get because cost of living impacts everyone it doesn't matter whether you're a stellar teacher or a great researcher if you're an adjunct or a graduate student if the cost of living has risen inflation is higher than 3 years ago then everyone deserves that right they don't have to prove in research and teaching and service that i have done better than masood raja to get those 6 cents right but that's how the system incorporates us into its own logic right and we feel justified in judging people and giving them numbers right and it gives us a scientific way of looking at it comes across as objective so overall I think the only way to mount some kind of resistance to these imperatives systemic imperatives that shape us is to remember you know that we are humans and that we must always ask questions and that if someone is behaving a certain way when they are in power or when they have power over you figuring out ways of reminding them that we are fellow human beings 
right? And at the end of the day, the difference could be this much that they are making into that much, right? But also to reminding ourselves, you know, that our words matter, that any time I am going to say something critical, it will be against power that we must build solidarities with others who may not be like us, who would may be completely different, but that we have something to bring to them and learn something from them and collectively have a cause, right? And so the only thing I think that saves us or anyone would be to connect our existence to the issues of justice, equity, right? to another constituency with whom we can work in solidarity, right? And to ask ourselves when we are in a position of power, how did we get there? Who helped us get there, right? And how can we use that to help others? These are some of the things that have worked for me in my former career and in my current career, right? Um, Sometimes, you know, I make mistakes just like anyone else, but one thing that I constantly remind myself to do is to think of my own actions every single day. How am I responding to those who have power over me, right? And how am I treating those who depend on me, right? And upon whom I might have a little bit of power. And do I sometimes quote the systems, this is what the law says, or this is what the system says, to take away something from someone or do something that I can easily remedy, right? And if I do that, then I have to constantly remind myself not to become an uncritical cog within the logic of any given system. So I highly recommend James C. Scott's Anarchist Calisthenics. You can bend it to your own use. But for as long as we work in any given system, if we let the system dictate our subjectivity, then we will become it, right? But if we connect to a constituency that we can work in solidarity with, that is being negatively impacted by the system of power, then chances are that we will be able to save maybe a little bit of our humanity and maybe work together with others to further strengthen that humanity. I know these are not practical suggestions. I know you are probably laughing with me at these thoughts, but I thought, you know, maybe I should share these unformed, raw thoughts with you and see what you think about it. So if you have had any experiences like this or anything that it reminds you of, please feel free to share those with me. And, you know, if I've said something wrong, please feel free to correct me. Um, I'm happy to learn from you or from anyone else. That's all I have today. Thank you so much for your time. And as always, stay safe, take care of each other, and I will now see you next time. Until then, peace and love.